Thanks, Margaret. Um, that song, man, what an excellent transition into where we're heading now, because that's true. Our God is constant, and he'll never forsake us. Children, okay, kindergarten through third grade, you're dismissed. See you, son. All right, so um, persecution is what we're talking about today, and uh, I'll tell you, confession, because I think I need to do that before I actually dig in here, is kind of feel a little hypocritical being the one who stands up here sometimes, because I know uh, I've talked to a few of you uh, about this, but the 30s, man, are they busy. Like, living in your 30s with kids and stuff, man, it's just, I, like, time is flying by. And, you know, I'm the person, no credit to me, I'm just saying, I tend to be the person who gets up and talks about persecution, and I should be, like, well-versed in it and be the expert, right? No, not really. In fact, there's times when life is busy, Guys, I'm not always looking at it. Because I'll tell you, time gets by and we, I get lazy. Or persecution is one of those things that's just not fun to look at. And when we're drained, do we want to look at something that's going to drain us further and something that's depressing? I think persecution is kind of like politics in some respects. I'm not making a joke. I'm making a serious thing here. But politics, all right? Remember this from last year? Okay, how many of you felt drained last year at this time? Politically, right? Let's get out of that. All right, so back to this. <laughs> Persecution is extremely serious. Politics is also very serious. I mean, we have a government where we have the right and the obligation to be a part of it, right? You talk about politics at work, and boy, is that uncomfortable for you and for the other people a lot of times. Persecution's uncomfortable. I mean, a lot of people come into church like, oh, it's persecution Sunday. What's he going to talk about? And it's uncomfortable. No doubt. And then we get angry at politics, believe me. And persecution, when we talk about it, we get angry. Because people we love are being persecuted. If we are part of the body of Christ, and being bought by Christ's blood, that's our family. It's very personal. We get angry. Politics brings fear. Do I need to talk about health care? No, okay. So, fear. I mean, if we're persecuted, that takes away a lot of who we are. And it's a scary thing to talk about. Because we know that the Bible says, we're going to look at it, that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And then, i got to admit, I'll confess this, some of you are much more diligent than I am. But I honestly, I sometimes just feel very disconnected from politics. And sometimes I get a lot pathetic. But with persecution, if you're not in it, how can you be connected to it? You can't relate. You know, I'm not in the government writing the laws. I don't know what they're talking about. Moral issues, I'm good. Other stuff, I'm kind of lost. And when it comes to persecution, I mean, we know what's going on, but how do you really relate to that? It's kind of tricky. So, I mean, we're going to talk about some of these things today, but honestly, um, my focus is not going to be like on a bunch of news updates you can do that on your own. I encourage you to do that. I mean, I'll mention some things, but we're going to take a look at really why we need to talk about persecution and how that directly affects us. So this picture and the introduction is uh, of Christians who live in Laos, all right, in Asia. And uh, I think I brought this up a couple weeks back. It was my last time I got up to make an announcement is in Laos, if you preach the gospel, and this is what's happening right now, if these people who are preaching the gospel and living out godly lives, sold out for Christ, they stand out. And when you stand out in an area where you're not supposed to, you get hit. 
And the way they're getting hit is by having their houses bulldozed into the river and being forced to relocate and not having jobs, churches being taken away from them. So that's a little bit of what's going on. That's the reality. And quite honestly, persecution is so broad that there's no way I can just give you a bunch of news updates because you're going to forget each single one of them just like I do. What goes in comes out. So hopefully this is something that's going to stick. And no matter what persecution piece of news you're getting, whether it's broad or very focused in, I think hopefully this is going to hopefully be what God wants us to talk about. So the map's there, and you know I teach history and geography, so I could quiz you all and have you raise your hands if I say red, blue, green, and see what continents they are. But you should know it. Okay, know your world around you. You know, my, my, my family gets on my case, and they say, like, how do you not know where Eritrea is? Well, look, you know, I'm a, t- I'm a teacher. I think it's important you know your world. So, I mean, I could quiz you again and say, where's Argentina? Where's Eritrea? And all these countries. But the point is, this is the world our family lives in. If you want a pertinent reason why you need to know the world, forget business and economics and the news. Your family lives here. You can drive to your grandma's house. Do you know at least where they are on a map? So if I say Christians are being persecuted in Nigeria, do you know where that is? I'm just asking. It's a, it's a self-reflective question. We need to know, because how can we effectively pray for people if we have no ounce of idea what life's like for them where they are? Know their geography. Know their customs. Again, you, there's no way you can be an expert on everything. But at the same time, a little bit of effort goes a long way to being educated. So there's my sales pitch. Now let's move on. All right. So last year... Um, this was the last slide and where we left off. So here we are, year number 10, or whatever Paul said it was. And the question when we closed is I asked, what are we doing now in our Christian life, right? What are we doing now that will sustain us when times of testing come? And that's, that's very relevant. Because times of testing are going to come, and testing looks different for so many people because it is. I mean, Jesus said, when we pray, we're supposed to say, lead us not into temptation, right? But deliver us from evil. Well, temptation is something that happens when we're tested. Jesus was tempted, but it's because he was going through a trial. And when we go through trials, temptations are going to come. So when we pray that prayer, it's not, God, you know, you're tempting me. What's up? You're a liar. That's not it. Trials will bring temptations with them. But we're supposed to be faithful in the trials. So, you know... What are we doing now to prepare ourselves? So I have some examples that I want to bring up here. Two of them, which if you've been going to Garden Chapel long enough, you should know at least one of them. Last year's sermon, I brought up a man named Dimitri. And Dimitri was a, is, well, I don't think he might be an old man now, but whether he's alive or dead doesn't matter. But he's an old man who lives in Russia. And Dimitri, back in the communist era, when he was a young dad like I am, right, young dad, some of you young married people think I'm old now. It's a little weird. Point is, um, his kids were my kids' ages. He had two sons. And at that time, he was not a well-educated guy in the scriptures and things, but he made a point to educate himself. And if you remember the video I showed last year, it was a song about this guy. And he started a Bible study in his house. Well, before that, he started having a family time with his children. That family time with his children got found out. People started coming to his house Long story short, he starts his house church, which is something straight out of the New Testament, where now the seams are, the balls are busting out because there's so many people who want to be there. Well, if you know your history, Soviet Union and Russia, you're going to be found out, okay? Where there's a lot of people meeting for a certain reason, he was investigated, warned, and he kept going, and even though he was warned again, eventually the guy's thrown in jail. 
And the song was about his testimony because his testimony was this. I forget how many years he was in prison, but it was a long time. He pretty much missed his kids' formative years growing up. And he gets out when they're adults. But what sustained him? Okay, what was he doing that sustained him? I'm pointing, yeah, sorry, screen, I have one back there. The screen, what was he doing? Is he was with his family in the Word. And he was meditating on the Scripture. And he was well grounded in his faith. Because what he did each day was he got up and he faced the sunrise and he sang the song his father taught him. I'm not much one for singing. Okay, I'm not very good at it. So my kids don't hear me sing much, but maybe they should. I don't know. But the point is, they, he had a song in his heart that he owned that was a heart of worship to his God, to our God. And he sang it. And those prisoners, every single day, he did that. And from their cells, they cursed at him, they screamed at him, they threw toilet paper or whatever at him because they were angry. As time goes on, he's beaten and things like that in the prison. And then at the end, he's now being taken out for his execution. And as the prison guards take him out for his execution, this was the part that was super powerful in the song. It's a true story. All the prisoners stood up, and they sang the song he sang. And what was he doing? How in the world do you do that? Day in, day out, no effect, no fruit that you see, people throwing things at you, cursing at you, in confinement like that. How do you endure? I don't know. I don't know. But he did. And then he gets reunited with his sons, and his sons carried on the things he taught them. Man, I hope we're doing that. I hope I'm doing that. Another one, Richard Wombrand, all right? If you've been going here long enough, you've heard of him. He's the guy who founded the organization of Voice of the Martyrs. And Richard Wombrand was a Romanian man. He was a Jewish guy who got saved, trusted Christ, lived in Romania, and he became a pastor. So the Soviets, again, locked him up for 14 years on two different occasions that added up to 14 years. Three of those years, Richard Wombrand spent in solitary confinement. So we think of the prison system here, which none of us want to go there. But we're not talking American prisons here. We're talking the 60s solitary confinement in the Soviet Union. Like, that's some hardcore stuff. And in his biography, read it, Tortured for Christ, he talks about the things he endured. But in those years of solitary confinement, there was a window in his door that the guards would check on him. And they'd look in, and he was on his knees praying. Now, one, I struggle praying, (laughs) focusing, and I'm not even persecuted, and I'm comfortable. And I struggle praying. Sometimes maybe we need to be taken to our lower part to actually be able to focus. I don't know. But that's neither here nor there. What he did, though, is he was praying. They'd pop that door open, and they'd take him out, and they'd beat him. And they'd lay him down on a table, take a club, and beat the bottoms of his feet. Day in, day out, on a daily or weekly basis. He endures this, and then eventually he gets out of prison, but he prayed. How do you get down and pray when you're in solitary confinement? How do you find words to speak when you can't interact with anybody but the guard who beats you up? How do you do that? I don't know. So that's where I was ending last year. What are we doing now to prepare ourselves? Now, I'm going to roll a dice and say that 99% of us or more will never have to deal with that type of persecution. But there are people who do, and that's our family, those who have trusted in Christ. So now, what is our obligation to them? And what is our responsibility? Even though we're not going to be put in solitary confinement and have our feet beaten and take our ch- have our children taken away, whatever, we still are going to be persecuted. So how, what's our response to persecution, and how do we support those who are persecuted? So here's what persecutors do. A little screaming emoji. He's a little stressed out. The persecutors seek to do that to us. And when they persecute, their goal is to stop the gospel. 
That's what it is. Now, they have all different sorts of motives, depending on where you live. If you live in northern Africa or the Middle East, well, it's Islamic extremism. And they want you to shut up, and they want you to worship Allah. And it's going to be a forced conversion. If you're not doing that, well, we know what they do because we've seen it in the news. If you're living in China or you're living somewhere like Vietnam, it's communist. And you're seen as a Christian as somebody who thinks for themselves and the enemy of the government. And they're going to do other things to you. Maybe not kill you, but they're going to do other types of things. Take you away from your children. They're going to put you in prison, knock your church down. Whatever it takes is what they're going to do. I can go on and on and give you examples, but persecutors, when they persecute, they want these feelings to be in the people they persecute because they want the gospel to stop spreading. So they're going to make you afraid. That's their goal. They're going to take away your basic needs. We'll talk about basic needs. They're going to make you feel a sense of loss by taking whatever they can away from you. They're going to inflict pain, just like we talked about Richard Wombrand. Not just physical, though. It can be emotional and psychological pain. Financial security. I mean, talk about that in America. Nobody, no matter who I talk to, what social class, no one ever has enough money. So they're going to make you feel inadequate financially by taking away your job and firing you or threatening your job or making you pay a tax because you're fined now for something you did. Isolation and so forth, all right? So you fill in the blanks for what those things mean, but that's the goal. Key point. The goal of persecution is to stop the spread of the gospel. They want to shut you up. And that's Satan. We know our enemy. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So Satan wants to shut us up and shut the church up. When I was in college, uh, hopefully you can read that in the back. I can't. But anyways, I'll read it to you in case you can't see it. When I was in college, most of you know I'm a teacher. And I went to hack for my first two years. And anybody, whether you're a teacher or not, you got to take psych 101 and sometimes you think you're losing your mind and you need a shrink to help you out in your psychology because you're going to cause of crazy stuff. Then as a teacher, I had to take child psychology as well. And Maslow, I'm not condoning Maslow. I'm just saying here's his standards for basic needs. And Maslow's standards for basic needs and what he says every single person needs to develop into a full, mature, thriving person is we need to be in an environment that facilitates our survival, gives us physical safety, Love and belonging, self-esteem and fulfillment. If any of those things are lacking, people are going to struggle. I mean, in the school system, how can I be teaching a lesson on the ancient Egyptians and their practices of embalming, okay, mummification, which is where I'm at right now in my unit, all right, and have a kid who's being abused by his parents really give a rip about what I'm saying? No, I mean, they don't care. They're afraid their organs are going to be taken out. So, you know, that's why we learn these things in college. But as a human, no matter what realm you're in, these are the basic needs the persecutors want to do. They want to take these things away. Everything on that slide relates to Maslow's law. So secular it may be, but it, it, it has a point. But listen, here's where it gets cool, all right? It's hard. Maslow's not our law. Jesus Christ is our law. Okay, here's the cool part. See, we live in the world and we, we feel the flesh. I mean, you hit yourself, it hurts, all right? But Jesus Christ is the law. So do the little compare thing from side to side. When you look at that, sure, they want to take away our life. Okay, but we have eternal life in Jesus Christ. That's the mindset we need to have that sustains us. Now, that's easier said than done. I don't know what I'd do. I've got to be real with you. I don't know what I'd do if I was in a situation some of our brothers and sisters is in. Physical safety. They can harm us. But 
we're promised an eternity with Jesus Christ. That there's no pain. There's no illness. There's no suffering. That's where we're at. Love and belonging. We're unconditionally loved by a Lord and Savior who died for us and sacrificed and endured every single source of temptation, one way or another, that we've, we're all going to experience. We're unconditionally loved. I mean, I think I unconditionally love my family. I do my best to, but I still am a failure when it comes to that. But all of us are unconditionally loved. So when we are forced, when the rubber meets the road, we need to remember these facts. Self-esteem. We're more than conquerors. In the end, we will win. I mean, there's, there's a fact. Fulfillment. We love to be self-fulfilled because we all want to have purpose and accomplishment in their life. Those who are persecuted, oh my goodness, what kind of purpose and accomplishment must they feel when their job is taken away and they can't put food on the table for their families? In fact, sometimes their children are taken away. Now they have no influence over them. Your daughters will be taken away by terrorists. What in the world? Where's your sense of fulfillment? Brokenness. I can't answer that question, except I do know that the Lord gives us his Holy Spirit within us. And we can have joy, and we can have rest and peace, because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Okay, I don't want to speak in cliches, okay, because cliches are shallow. But at the same time, the Word of God is deep and living and active, and these are the things that are true. It's just we can't see them, but we need to know them, because we live by faith to faith. And this is something I was just telling another guy. We are saved... By faith, right? But we grow and we mature daily by the same faith we initially placed in Jesus Christ as our Savior. Each day and each experience we have, we have to trust Him with that same faith that He's able to save us for eternity. He can also save us from each thing we go through and give us the power and strength to do it. That has to be our mindset, and it has to be the people who are being persecuted's mindset. That's where it is. But here's another question. When you look at those lists... Whose side are we on? And what I mean by that is, are we on the persecutor's side or the persecuted's side? Because we have a choice in how we live our life. So we got to be very, very careful in how we live. So let me um, go ahead and uh, let's turn here to 2 Timothy. And this is where we're going to park for a little bit. So 2 Timothy, I know it says 3.12 up there. I want you to turn to 2 Timothy 1 because that's where we're actually going to spend more time. So 2 Timothy chapter 1. All right, 20 minutes. So 2 Timothy. And verse 3.12, I'm going to read while you turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. But um, 3.12 says, okay, our perse- the persecutors want to make us afraid and make Christians afraid and fear. And it says here, And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I'll tell you what, that verse stresses me out. I don't want to be persecuted. I don't want to lose my job. It stresses me out for my brothers and sisters in Christ because they're going to be persecuted. And that's the goal there of persecutors to do that. Um, Sorry, let me turn my page here in my notes. So that's the goal. But notice the word here. There's a key word, and that word is desire. All who desire. The word desire can mean lots of different things, but desire simply means that you have resolve. So a desire can, one, be a decision you make, because in order to desire something, you have to sometimes decide. Like marriage, sometimes you resolve to love your spouse. It's a choice. But on the same thing, it's also something you delight in doing. It's also a feeling. That's what we're looking at. So when we decide to follow Christ, we need to not only feel it and have that response, but first it's a decision you make. So it's fact and then feeling is how it goes. 
Before I turn to 2 Timothy 1, um, let me give you an example here of what I think this whole feeling and commitment thing means. And I didn't give this one at first service because I ran out of time. But many of you know, in addition to you know, teaching, I coach. And I coach sport across country. So my runners, I, and I used the cross-country example last year because sports are great lessons. But this year I had 24 kids on the team, and only five of them were second-year runners. So that was awesome. The program, I lost a lot of kids. New kids came out great. But that means 19 of my runners now are rookies. And we're training and we're running, you know, in a cross country. We run, run, run because it's fun, fun, fun. That's what we do. But as we run, I'm telling the kids, I'm like, look, you're going to be in a race. You're going to be running other teams. And here's how it's scored. And here's what you need to do to win. And here's why we're doing this exercise. Here's why we're doing that. I try to keep it real and try to keep it fun. They sometimes want to play games. But I have kids come up to me like, Mr. Adder, coach, can we play dodgeball today? What would you sign up for? And this is like every day. Can we play dodgeball? No, we're not playing dodgeball. Now, you want to play ultimate frisbee? That's great. We run a lot. That's a great running game. Dodgeball. Middle school. Okay, I teach junior high. Not, I coach junior high, not varsity. But so we go there, and then we run our first meet against Milton Hershey. And, I mean, we got stampeded. It was ugly. And I was a little frustrated because I play to win, like all people should. But, you know, some of the kids, they, they did really well. But see, what was lacking was desire. They wouldn't have fun. And how often is it in church, in Christianity? This is what we do. It's fun. It feels good. Let's have sermons on love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control. Let's pump ourselves up. All good stuff. I want my kids. I tell them when I coach you, I want you to have fun, to work hard, and win. Those three things. But you can't win if you don't do the other two, right? So we did a great job of having fun, and I've turned my head and say, look, you guys, here's what you're doing today. And I go do my little run, and I spy on them, I check on their walking. How often do we do that in our spiritual walk? Instead of running with our eyes fixed on the prize, we're walking. Now look, that question, what are we doing now to prepare for when persecution comes? If you're walking and not running, what are you doing to prepare? It's not going to help you. So what I did, and this is not my wisdom, if you saw McFarland, USA, I got the idea from that movie. It's a cross-country movie. But remember that stretch in September when it was really, really hot? And it's the only time of year when the grass actually did turn brown? We were out practicing in that, and we already got stampeded by Milton Hershey. So I bought six Gatorades and kept them cold throughout the day. And I had my kids. I look at their time from that race, and I started the slowest kid. And I ended the fastest kid, and we ran the cross-country course, a two-mile race. But what they had to do is if, so, if, if uh, Kaylee right, beat so-and-so by 30 seconds, she gets a 30-second head start, then he goes. He beat the next kid by 12 seconds, then he goes until my fastest kid, he, the first kid got an 11-minute and 20-second head start over the other kid. Now, the goal is, look, you ran this race last time. Theoretically, you should tie the slowest runner, Right? And I said, the first, the first six of you who get to the finish line, you're going to get the Gatorade. Now you all know what happened, right? Those kids who've been dogging it, they ran like their life depended on it. They wanted that Gatorade. And some of the kids, I'm like, wow, look what you can do. You better do it next time. But we sat down and had that talk. It's like, look, what are you motivated by? I mean, that's the whole intrinsic versus extrinsic. In life. Unfortunately, here's a sermon for society, but we all want rewards and entitlements and things like that. That's not how it works. 
We need to be motivated because we need to be motivated to do what's right because it's the right thing to do. That's all about integrity. My team was lacking in that department, especially self-discipline. But from that point forward, I think they got it because then they realized the potential. And I said, guys, you should be showing up. And if you're going to run hard for Gatorade, I'll tell you who you're letting down. You're letting down two people. You're letting down your team because you're selfish. And you're letting yourself down as well. Now, as Christians, we're letting three people down. We're letting down ourselves, the team, which is the body of Christ, and our Lord. So there's a huge lesson that the Gatorade teaches on a hot day. But, you know, where is our desire? What's it for? Is it for, like, you know, the comfortable Christian life and knowing we're doing good and, you know... But are we, or are we for real? Are we very serious about the way we're living? Now, this is a sermon of persecution, so let's get there. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. So when we deal with the heat, when we deal with trials, and when we deal with all these things, here's what the Bible says, and this is the Apostle Paul writing Timothy. He says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity but of power, of love, and of discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. There it is on the screen. Three things. Power, love, and discipline. These are the things that we have. The Holy Spirit resides within us. If we've acknowledged our sin and trusted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we have power to be any trial, whether it's some sin that we're stuck in, something we're abusing, something that we're doing and we know is wrong. We have the power to defeat it. No matter how afraid of it we are, we have that power. We also have love for our Lord, but his love also helps us love other people. How do we love those who persecute us and spit on us and take us off when we're driving? Discipline. We also are now responsible for our actions. How do we do these things? This is what our persecuted brothers and sisters are up against. So here's the lesson, I think, in verse 8. What do we do? How do we support the persecuted church? Well, I think the key is this. Paul says, do not be ashamed. Then he says, but join with me. Some of us are never going to suffer the way our persecuted brothers and sisters are going to suffer. There's no way we can join them. And for most of us, there's no way we're ever going to go visit them because it's just physically impossible. But are we a spiritual body or a physical body? We're a spiritual body. So, remember I asked the question of, are we supporting the persecuted or the persecutors? If we're not living a life that's sold out for God, and we're living in sin, which is a choice. Now, we will sin. Don't get me wrong. We're going to sin. But there's the thing called confession and repentance, and you turn from it. But if you're choosing to willingly live in sin, and you're embarrassed about the gospel, and you find yourself shutting up when you should not shut up, and we should speak, I'm guilty, guys. I'm assuming, hopefully, some of you are not guilty, but I know I am. I support the persecutors. I help them. Because I'm not joining the spirit with my brothers and sisters. I obviously am not feeling their pain because I'm living in America where I'm callous and numb to what's going on. There's nothing wrong with being an American. It's awesome. But to whom much is given, much is required as well. So there's a lot of things that are difficult to process and, and you know, understand here. So anyways, we keep reading then in verse 8 and 9. And in verse 9 it says, uh, The power of God who has saved us, called us with a holy calling. Again, we're supposed to be holy, set apart, not living in sin. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose. And the grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death... Talk about Maslow. 
survival. Well, he, Jesus Christ abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. There it is. Why are people persecuted? Because they are able to offer something that no one else can offer. We have that within us, the good news. We can offer that to people. And that's why people want to shut us down, the, who persecute. We have that hope, the gospel. And then it says, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. Now, stop here. You see where it says, for this reason? How many of you ever heard a sermon on the word therefore or for this reason? You ever hear a teacher or a preacher talk about here's the word therefore and here's what it means? Okay, well, we're going to hear one. You ready? For this reason means cause effect. If you ever see the word therefore in the Bible or for this reason, a phrase, go back and look what you just read because you can't start there, which is why I didn't start here. Everything Paul just said, I have the gospel that has the hope to save people, and it saves me within me, and I'm not ashamed of that, and I want to live my life sold out for Jesus Christ. For this reason, I also suffer these things. But I'm not ashamed, for I am convinced, or sorry, for I know who I have believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Whatever trial we are going through, whether we're being persecuted for our faith, whether we're struggling with temptation and sin, we serve a God who's able to sustain us and give us victory in our life. That's what it comes down to. And so when those moments of trials and testing come, that is the truth that we need to know, we need to remember, we need to hear. Because that's what sustains us. That's what sustains the brothers and uh, sisters. That's what sustained Richard Rumbrand when he was being beaten in solitary confinement. So the next part um, I want to hit is this verse. Go to Psalms chapter 1, or you can read it on the screen. And this passage has nothing to do with persecution, but it really does. It has everything to do with our response to what happens when we're persecuted. And it's a very famous one. So Psalm chapter 1, I'm going to read the first three verses, and it goes like this. It says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Verse 1. Blessing is not a physical thing necessarily. In this case, we're talking spiritual. It's a spiritual thing. Same with verse 3, when it talks about being prosperous. That prosperous thing is a spiritual thing. We're not promised to be wealthy and rich. We may be. But we're promised spiritual blessings. But in verse 1 here, this is how we walk, right? We become like those we surround ourselves with. It's a lesson all of us parents teach our kids. Choose your right friends. Same here for us. What are we surrounding ourselves with? Not just the body of Christ. Are we surrounding ourselves with scripture? Are we surrounding ourselves in truth? Because the truth is what will sustain us. Nothing else will sustain us when we are persecuted. The word delight shows up again, doesn't it? What is our delight? But our delight is in the law of the Lord, and in it he meditates day and night. Now, I don't know about you, but for years the word meditate has just had this idea to me that's really weird because I picture somebody sitting like this and emptying their mind of all things. If that's your form of meditation, when you empty your mind, your brain will turn into mashed potatoes because there's nothing there. And Jesus Christ told the same thing. When that person, a demon-possessed person, right, had a demon removed from them and taken out, and then they didn't fill it with truth, what happened? Seven demons more powerful than the first came in and took them over. It has to be our delight, something we're actively doing. Meditation is active. Meditation has nothing to do with emptying yourself of all things. Meditation is like exercise, and it is hard. I remember uh, 
years ago, uh, Mike Lamb and I, growing up, my buddy, and uh, we would go to the gym. And Mike definitely liked working out more than me. I will run six miles any day, but don't ask me to lift weights. I don't really like it. But we did a leg workout, and then that night we made wings, so we had to go to Giant. I mean, we were walking like this in Giant through the aisles, picking up the wings and the hot, the hot sauce. It was awful. But meditation hurts. So with meditation, meditation, and that's another sermon in itself, but meditation is, are we reading the Bible? Are we taking time to process what we read and to pray about it? It's work. I'm going to be real. It's work. But anything worth working for is worthwhile. We have to do it. Because otherwise, we're not going to be prepared for when persecution comes. How are we going to pray for people if we don't even know how to pray ourselves and find a discipline to do so? So meditation is hard work, and it takes effort. Meditation is also like a cow. It takes digestion. Cows have four stomachs. And it's a very disgusting analogy, but they puke up their food and they rechew it and they swallow it and puke it up again and do it until it's finally eliminated. But a cow's stomach is a great example because we need to do the same thing. We read something, but for me, I'm an in and out type of guy. I forget it. But you process it and it becomes a part of you and it's a practice. And then the more you start lifting weights or the more you start running, you start with a half a mile, then you do a mile and you keep going. Eventually, you're going to go. A lot of us in America... We like to do, like, hey, I'm going to go run six miles today and never do it again. I'm going to go try and bench my body weight, and I quit. Because it's hard. Meditation is hard work. So don't feel discouraged, but at the same time, be encouraged. Because God is going to help you. And if you have a decision or a desire to know him, he's going to give you the power to do it. But be reasonable when you start. Start small. Read one verse a day. Don't try and read the Bible in three days. One verse. In context and meditate on it. These are the things we have to do in order to endure when persecution comes. Finally, the tree. It says that when we meditate and we know God intimately, we're like that tree that yields its fruit in its season, doesn't wither, and it prospers because its roots are in the water. And in this case, it's talking about the living water. And if you know your Bible, Jesus is called, capital LW, the living water. That's who he is. We have that when we root ourselves in God's word and we know it for ourselves. Now, what's missing here is there's no geography given about that tree. I mean, we know it's by a stream or a river or something, but like, where is it? Is it in a meadow? Is it in a forest? Is it in a desert? Where is the tree? Some African savanna? It's one of those gnarly trees that looks weird. What is it? Well, it's just like that map I showed in the beginning. In America, we have a lot of freedom. The ground here, for us, is very easy. We have periods of drought like September. But for the most part, we, don't, we, think, we think we don't need to have the strong meditation. Because we have resource after resource, Sunday morning worship, radio, you name it, we have it. But we're still going to go through it. There's some people who don't have as many resources. And you go to the Middle East and you're straight up in the desert, spiritually and physically. And that tree has to be there, and you have to be well-rooted and established in God's word. So how do we come alongside and support people who are persecuted? We have to join them. And that's about a practice of self. If we're collectively the body of Jesus Christ, we all work together. You know, you're walking down, the, walking through your um, bedroom at night. There's a tight spot between your dresser and your bed, and you bang your pinky toe. You know how it goes. You yell and you grab your toe. Well, we should be the same way. When we find out persecution, we should yell because it has us angry and passionate and grab our toe. 
we should grab them. But that also should motivate us to help them and to live in such a way where we learn not to walk that way again because it's going to hurt. But how do we help them? It's, it's a thing. It's a community. This is how we do it. So quick case study and I'll be done. So I am at 45 now, so bear with me. But this is the end. Quick case study. And again, we're going to make it very quick. This is like a month-long series if you want to study Joseph. But many of you, if you know your Bible, you know the story of Joseph. He's a pretty, well, pretty well-known character in the Bible. And Joseph's brothers absolutely hated him because he was dad's favorite. Don't play favorites, parents. But he was a favorite. And one thing leads to another. They fake his death. They sell him as a slave. They tell dad he's dead. And now they, this, this terrible thing's happened. But Joseph did nothing wrong. In Egypt, when he's there, he's persecuted. I mean, we know about Potiphar's wife accusing him of something he didn't do, and then he gets thrown in jail, and then he becomes in a jailer, and now he never gets out. So one thing leads to another. He's constantly persecuted for his obedience. He's punished for doing the right thing. In the end, though, God blesses him. How cool would it be to have the Psalms of Joseph in the Bible? We have the Psalms of David, but I'd love to know what Joseph was thinking during those times. But we know that Joseph was faithful, and in the end... Joseph's able to save a lot of people through his obedience. At the end of the life, right, all of Egypt, not all of Egypt, sorry, all of Israel, all of his family moves into Egypt. His dad, Jacob, dies. And again, I'm assuming you know the story, okay? But the last part and one of the last things that Joseph says in that book is this. He says, as for you, speaking to his brothers, when you sold me as a slave, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about the present result, to preserve many people alive. So persecution. People mean it for evil. They might not realize that they're on the enemy's side, Satan's side, they have their own agenda. But Satan means it for evil. When we're persecuted, it's for evil. But we have no idea how God's going to use that. And preserving many people alive, that's huge and powerful. I mean, when Joseph, through Joseph's diligence and obedience to the Lord, he was able to save any nation that came to Egypt for food. But more importantly, here's the question I have for each of us. Most of the time, we never, ever get to see a lot of the fruit that our lives bear. We see some when we look at our kids and they grow up. And we look at things we do and sometimes we get recognition, but a lot of it we don't see. Well, what about our obedience for Jesus Christ? That's one we often don't see the recognition for. How many people are we preserving alive by our testimony and how we live? Because that's what we're called to do. We're going to encounter trials and struggles. But we need to come alongside the persecuted church and be obedient just as they are obedient. So in the end, let me leave you guys with this question. And this is the thing that's been piercing my heart since I read the book in the summer. They kind of gave me some of these ideas. Is just like I ended last year with the empty tomb, we know that Jesus is alive, which is why we live. Okay? If he doesn't live, there's no purpose to this. But it says, does our lifestyle and witness for Christ support the persecutors? Or does it support the persecuted? How can we join with them? It's by living in obedience for Christ. So, listen, I apologize. If you expected to have a bunch of news reports today and, you know, how can we pray, that's coming tonight from Pastor Paul. But I think all change and all holiness and obedience has to come from us in our heart first. We can't be supporting a persecuted church if we're not living the life ourselves. So that's how I want to leave with you guys. So I hope that was an encouragement to you. So let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you so much um, just for your church, Lord, for your body. Lord, that body is yours. And Lord, pray, may we not take it lightly. I thank you, Lord, for the sacrifice that you made, that we willingly accept uh, the death that you gave on the cross and your burial and your resurrection. And thank you for that hope. 
Lord, help each one of us today, Lord, is um, it's a serious thing that we talk about, living godly lives, because that causes us to deny ourselves, and denial usually brings pain and discomfort. But Lord, I pray that, that we today would join with you, uh, join with your church, and we would live obedient lives. We pray for those who are persecuted, Lord, who we struggle to relate to here in the West, but we do, Lord, pray for their perseverance, and Lord, that they would also be able to speak truth in the moment. Lord, I pray that they'd be able to endure, and they wouldn't denounce you, but Lord, they'd be obedient. Lord, guide us as we go from here today, and we ask these things in your name. Amen. You're dismissed.